you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2, I had provided some sermon outlines in the, uh, with the distribution of the bulletin. If you didn't get one and you'd like one, just would, would you raise your hand and um, I've asked Josh to hand some out if, if you need a copy of a sermon outline for this morning's message. Does anybody want one? Anybody? If not, they are also on the back table, so... This morning's sermon is the eighth sermon in a series on creation, which basically we're walking through Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and getting to some of the basic foundational truths of our faith. And this morning's message is a special one, not only because we get to the passage in Genesis 2 where marriage and the institution of marriage is described, but it's also Reformation Sunday. October 31st. In the 15th and 16th century Europe, a number of Roman Catholic leaders, including Jan Hus, John Wycliffe, Erasmus, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others, sought to steer the Mother Church back to the apostolic teaching on any number of matters. As these efforts concentrated on the doctrine of salvation or justification by faith, They resulted in a movement known as the Protestant Reformation. That word Protestant comes from the word protest, the protest that was being made. It is less well known, however, that in addition to bringing Reformation to what the Bible teaches about salvation, the Protestant Reformation included substantial reforms to the human family, specifically what the Bible teaches about sex and marriage. Among all the many important reformations to the family that took place at this time include, and these aren't small, being reminded and recovering the biblical teaching that marriage and sex are good gifts from God, not to be avoided or shunned, but to embrace, and certainly not a lesser calling or vocation than that which belongs to unmarried religious men and women known as nuns and priests. In his book on this subject, Stephen Osment describes the reformation of the family in Europe during the time of the Reformation and why it was necessary. In one part of the beginning of the book, he quotes an anonymous writer who wrote a pamphlet saying how to make convents Christian. His suggested reforms, quote-unquote, included one, ending all vigils, masses, holidays, and canonical hours. Two, having a preacher interpret God's word daily to the sisters. Three, during the daily prayers called matins, Latin prayers were to be removed and replaced with the reading of the Psalms and of the Old and New Testament in German. Four, the Eucharist was to be given to the women in both kinds, both the bread and the wine. And above all five, no more celibate vows were to be made nor, quote, any woman will be forced to remain in a cloister against her will. But if she so chose, she should be free to follow her friends and take a husband and serve her neighbors as a Christian in the world. The reformation of the family. And I will add as an aside, Martin Luther's wife, Catherine, was someone who was liberated from a convent. 
I think we've come a long way since then. Today, more than 500 years later, the gains of the Protestant Reformation in the Christian family have appeared to me to be almost all but lost. Luther, Calvin, and Hus would be shocked to see how many professing evangelical and reformed Protestant Christians, how we behave in matters of sex and marriage. We seem to have taken the biblical doctrines of the Reformation and have used them to do and to have a license to do whatever we please. Turning the Reformation into a deformation. All across society, including the church, it seems that the apostolic teaching of scripture on sex and marriage has been replaced with sub-biblical beliefs and practices guided more by modernism and postmodernism and even hedonism. The situation can only be described as it is in the book of Judges, days in which every man and woman appear to do what is right in our own eyes. It seems to me that what is needed is another reformation of the family today. As with all good reformations, we must go back to the scriptures. If we were to have a pamphlet written for today, it might be entitled, How to Make Marriage Christian Again. What would the reformation of sex and marriage look like today? What would we include as the main headings in such a pamphlet? My sermon this morning, I'm calling God's Plan for Marriage. And what we find in Genesis 2 is the remarkable claim that in terms of God's plan for sex and marriage, the Bible provides a solution for all time and for all people and for all cultures that will never be deviated from. He will never change it. It's fundamental and will always be true. So before we look at the elements or aspects of God's plan for marriage, let's give our attention to the reading of Scripture. In a good Reformation fashion, we're reading and explaining the Scripture as the center of our Christian worship. This is Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, the eternal and infallible word of God. Then God said, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is flesh of my f- bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Let us pray. O Lord, your scriptures have been read. Now I pray that the words of my mouth as a preacher and 
the thoughts of each and every one of our hearts as hearers would be pleasing in your sight, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The elements or key features in this pamphlet that we're thinking about on how to make marriage Christian again, I have four from our text. The first one is that marriage is monogamous. Monogamous is a word that's maybe hard to spell. It's made up of two parts. Mono means one, and gami is the Latin word for wife or woman. Marriage is a one-woman proposition. And it isn't one woman at a time. It's one woman for life. The marriage vow in a traditional ceremony is till death do us part. And that means nothing is to intervene. No other person, man or woman, or anything is to intervene in that marriage bond. God's plan for marriage is that one man and one woman will be married and faithful to one another in marriage for life. We see this in our text in several places. It shows up in the song or the poem that Adam sings. It's interesting that the first human words described in the Bible is a poem. And it's a, it's a love poem. And the man says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In verse 23. And then in verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This word hold fast, clinging or cleaving, is the, the King James phrase here, signifies there is no other person permitted in the marriage bond, in the marriage relationship. In the society of marriage, there are two and two only the man and the woman. It's monogamous. It's also evident in Genesis chapter 1, which is a text that we covered a few weeks ago, because God connects procreation, being fruitful and multiplying, with the creation of man in the image of God, male and female, he created them. It's also clear in Genesis 4.19 where the son of Seth named Lamech is described in terms that he is the first one to deviate from this original pattern. And as you read in the description of Lamech's life, his bigamy, which is to have two wives, or digamy, is just one expression of an overall mindset displeasing to God. Murray calls it presumptuous arrogance and boastful insolence. So to do anything besides having a monogamous for-life marriage is to follow the path of Lamech in boastful arrogance and insolence against the Creator and His plan. Second, God's plan for marriage in our pamphlet, if we were to say how to make marriage Christian again, we would have godly marriages, not just monogamous marriages. God's plan for marriage is not just for anybody to marry anybody. Now, before sin entered the world, that, that would have been the case. Any man and any woman would have married one another in the pristine garden as Adam and Eve, had they kept the original command, we'll see next week that they did not, but had they kept it, their children and their grandchildren, everyone would have been God-fearing. 
because Adam would have been confirmed in holiness, no longer able to fall from his created estate of sinlessness. But that didn't happen. And so as the curse proceeds, as God addresses the man and the woman in their disobedience, he promises that from henceforth in Genesis chapter 3, there will be two kinds of people in the world. Amongst the one human race, there will be two species or classes. There will be the, the, the seed of the woman, the godly people, and then the seed of the serpent, the ungodly. And God wants godly marriages. After all, in verse 25 of our text in Genesis 2, the man and the wife are walking together in the garden and they're naked and they're not ashamed. They're walking completely bare, if you will, before the face of God. There's nothing that, that they're ashamed of in their relationship with God or with one another. It is a godly society in Genesis 2.25. But when sin enters the picture... It complicates matters incredibly. The woman in listening to the serpent and the man in his passively allowing the woman to handle the matter of the temptation plunges humanity and human marriage into absolute chaos. In fact, the description of the curse describes cursed relationships between men and women in marriage. But our text reiterates, after sin enters the world, the importance of having a godly marriage. Genesis 4.26, the Bible says that men, Seth, and his family began to call on the name of the Lord, making it clear that what God desires is for families, and particularly husbands and wives, to bend their knees together before God in prayer and in worship, and ordering their homes around his holy word. Among all those who sinned, there remained a line of godly men and women who sought to keep worship and obedience to God as first place in their lives. What this means for you today is that if you are a God-fearing man, you may not date or be in a relationship with an ungodly woman. It's prohibited. God requires Godly marriages, and godly marriages begin with godly dating relationships. For a God-fearing woman to marry or even contemplate a relationship with an unbelieving man is an absolute violation of God's plan for marriage. His plan is that man and woman would worship him together before God. What could be worse than when two royal image bearers ally together to live their entire human existence in defiance of the God who made them. And if that's not bad enough, if one of the two in the pair know better, and because that woman or that man is so desperate for a relationship, prostitutes and gives up and bastardizes everything that's important in life so I can have this relationship, it's not his plan. He intends you to be in a godly relationship. And so in Genesis 6, 1 and 2, take a look at that text. When man began to multiply and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took their, as their wives any that they chose. This isn't speaking of 
weird sort of Mount Olympus marriage between demigods and angels and human beings. It's simple. It's godly men were attracted to ungodly women and they set aside their birthright and their calling to be God-fearing men. And they went after unbelieving women and married them. That's what it means. And that's the key crisis that, that precedes the deluge of judgment of the flood. The flood, we could say, is actually precipitated by the, the, the wholesale abandonment of godly marriage. God absolutely disapproves of mixed marriages. And by mixed, I am not referring to having different cultures, different ethnicities, but different religions. God encourages the the kind of cross-pollination in the kingdom that we see when people with different backgrounds come together. It can make matters more difficult in terms of learning a different way of eating or talking or relating, perhaps. Even when a Baptist and a Presbyterian were to get married, can present real challenges in the marriage if they're not handled with grace. Nevertheless, the mixed marriages that are prohibited in the Bible are those when a godly man, Baptist, Lutheran, or whatever, marries an ungodly woman or vice versa. I think this is also a reminder that just because someone has a label of Christian on their name doesn't necessarily make them spouse material. When our children were little, we, we would drive by a building with a cross on it and say, look, Mama, look, Papa, that's a church. We said, just because it has a cross doesn't make a Christian. Just because she wears a cross, men, doesn't make her Christian women just because he has a, a cross tattoo on his deltoid. See my deltoids? I practice that one in the mirror, by the way. Even if someone has Christian in their religious background, Catholic, Presbyterian, Lutheran, but they are not people, a person who loves his Bible and loves his Holy Spirit and have a personal conversion experience from death to life, it's not enough. Now, it doesn't mean that God can't do a good work in his or her life. It doesn't mean that they can't sit down with a pastor or an elder or a youth leader and that person can help lead them to Christ. But dating is not a missionary enterprise where you hope and cross your fingers if you just are a godly girl or a godly guy that eventually she'll, he or she will come around. God's pattern is that both partners in a marriage fear him, love him, and obey him. A third element in God's pattern for marriage that we see in our text is related to the first two. It's sexual purity in marriage. Look at Adam's response. This at last, he says in Genesis 2.23. Now, it may seem obvious, but there were a lot of animals that God paraded in front of Adam. Adam waited. He saw no appropriate partner for himself in any of the animals. But when he saw a woman, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, 
Then he had sexual relations with her. So our text is clear that marriage and monogamy and worship and fear and reverence of God not only encourages but absolutely requires sexually pure marriages. The mandate to be fruitful and multiply cannot be fulfilled with any other creature. Adam is focused on his wife exclusively when she is prevented, presented to him. As I heard one preacher say, her name is not woman, it's whoa, man. He's in love, like he's got tweet, 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 the little birdies are flying over his head. Cupid has struck, if I may put it that way. Notice the commitment, his exclamation, his devotion, his joy, the calm, settled, godly friendship which results. They are naked and unashamed. This is the pattern. And when this single-minded family sexual commitment to purity is disrupted with other sexual partners or with other sexual thoughts for other people, God's plan or pattern for chastity and holiness in marriage is rejected, and as a result, the seventh commandment is broken. Here I want us to look at three different important passages about sexual purity in marriage. If you want to turn to these, you can, or you can just listen, because I'll be reading them. But the first one is Genesis 39.9. These are three verses that show you why sexual purity in marriage is so important. The first passage is in the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 39, verse 9. If you know the story of Joseph, or if you don't, Joseph was a godly man. He went through a lot of trials in his life. But he found himself eventually in, as essentially the, the lead servant, like the household manager of a very wealthy businessman named Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife was, whew, she was good looking. And she was not happy in her marriage. I don't know what was going on with Potiphar. I mean, he's a businessman. He was busy. Maybe he was on the road like three weeks out of the month. But his wife and Joseph spent a lot of time together. And repeatedly, over and over and over again, she was tugging on his little toga. Joseph, you're pretty good looking. And eventually, she got right in his face and demanded that, she have sex with, that he have sex with her. And Joseph's response in Genesis 39.9 was, how could I do this to Potiphar? His response was not, how could you do this to your husband? What was his response? How could I sin against God? That's what he said. The ultimate thing that will keep you from sexual sin in your marriage is fear of God more than anything else. You're focused on pleasing God and God alone with your body. The second verse is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. In these so-called antitheses section, Jesus mentions six things that the Pharisees were teaching, and he just kind of picked them, and he's like, let me explain to you how shallow your understanding in the Bible is, you Bible experts, you. And one of the ones that he picked where they had essentially fallen off and failed to understand God's heart in the Bible is in the matter of adultery. Matthew 5, 27 and 28 says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What this means is that Jesus is concerned not only with adultery with your body or your hands, your genitalia, but with your mind. John Murray explains it this way, if you fix your eyes on a woman with sexual desire, you've committed adultery in your heart. This applies to women as well as men. Adultery is an equal opportunity employer. In fact, more divorces today, I'm told, are initiated by women than by men. While there are many benefits to certain elements or aspects of feminism in the Me Too movement, which I, I support, in the process, we're also seeing women leave the commandments of God. And ladies, you need to be reminded that you and your friends have an obligation to live under the commandments of God in your marriage. And this includes the temptation to adultery. Even if you desire him in your mind, ladies, you're committing adultery in your heart. You are breaking the seventh commandment and defiling your marriage. Now, understand, and this is especially necessary for young people, sex desire is not wrong. People who say it's wrong actually violate and desecrate the beautiful gift of marriage and sex. The problem is when you take your desire and attempt to satisfy it outside the, the parameters that he's given, very generous parameters, I might add. Murray calls marriage the strictly guarded sanctuary in which sex desire may be fulfilled and which God reserves for the man and his wife. The third passage on marriage, Genesis 39, 9, was my first Matthew 5, 27, 28, the third one that we're talking about sexual purity is 1 Corinthians 7, 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 says this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and another of another. Now the person speaking in this passage is the Apostle Paul, who you need to know was unmarried. And he said, I wish that everyone were like me. In other words, Paul saw something in the state of being unmarried that was superior to and to be desired over being married. Now this is encouraging for those of you who are unmarried. Paul is describing the gift of singleness, and he's echoing, by the way, if you want to do some research on your own later, in Matthew chapter 19, Paul is simply kind of rephrasing or echoing what Jesus teaches about singleness or the state of being unmarried in Matthew chapter 19. He's elaborating on Jesus' teaching on marriage in the Gospels. Jesus, in a nutshell, says some are unmarried because that's the way they were born. Some are unmarried because of things that have happened to them in their life. But some have chosen to remain unmarried for the glory of God. That's what Jesus says. So Paul, in, in echoing this teaching of Jesus, is describing the morally beautiful and virtuous and precious and valuable calling to remain unmarried, to remain single, to the glory of God. Jesus does not lay down a law of celibacy. 
But part of the sexual purity in marriage, this is my point here, is that those of us who are unmarried are content to use our state of celibacy, refraining from sexual intercourse, because that's not God's will for us, and instead giving ourselves to the work of the Lord, whatever that might look like for you. According to the Apostle Paul, it is for each one to consider carefully in your life whether God has given you the gift of marriage or not. What is his calling in your life in this matter of marriage and singleness? There is absolutely no stigma attached to not being married. I'm not sure we've done a good job of this as as Christians. Church is sometimes seen as a marriage club. But singles as well as marrieds have an important role to play in the body of Christ. And just because we say that marriage is the path for most people doesn't in any way diminish the essential place that unmarried persons have in the church of Jesus Christ. We need to do a better job as a congregation, as a denomination, of recognizing singleness as a legitimate and holy vocation for some people. At the same time, I understand that singleness for many of you is a tremendous challenge. And I want to challenge you as an unmarried person to do a better job of involving the church in your struggles. Yes, we know that you you are discontent at times. Yes, we know that you feel lonely. Yes, we know that you have complaints about not having a wife or a husband. And we understand that. We want to help carry that burden with you. We want you to insinuate yourselves into the life of the church in essential ways. We want you to, if you were to be gone on a Sunday or to be gone for a month, we want several ministries to collapse because as a single person, you've so strategically leveraged your time and focus on the things of God that we can't exist without you. We want you to to be open to feedback and correction. How can I be more godly in my singleness, pastor, elder, leading woman of the church? Give me counsel. Give me guidance. Hold up a mirror. I don't have a wife or a husband to to reflect that into my life. So, So give me some feedback. I want to walk in the ways of the Lord. So monogamous marriage would be one of our sections in our pamphlet godly marriages, sexually pure marriages, and finally, the final element you need to see from Genesis 2 this morning, God's plan for marriage is that it would be ordered, an ordered marriage, an orderly marriage. By order, I'm speaking of the biblical pattern of the relationship between men and women in marriage. The text clearly teaches that the order of creation of the man and the woman is not an accident. God didn't just roll the dice and say, who am I going to make first? Man or woman? I guess it's the dude. In God's wisdom and in God's plan, he made man first. And if Genesis 1 concentrates our attention on the radical and amazing royal dignity that man and woman share as image bearers in God, that's Genesis 1. Genesis 2 emphasizes the order of creation in creating an ordered relational pattern within the man-woman partnership of marriage. Man is first and woman is not. Woman is second. 
God's plan for marriage means that we recognize that the order of creation is important. Notice in our passage that the authoritative function of naming falls to man, not the woman. It is not the woman who names the creatures, it's the man. It's not the woman who names woman, it's the man. The naming of the animals takes up a strange kind of an aside section in the passage until you recognize that the next thing that Adam names, after having named all the animals and passed on them as possible partners, he sees one that's a corresponding helper to him, that's bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, and names her woman because Isha, because she's taken out of man, Ish. Her, her, little, her literal name in Hebrew, like in English, woman, man, is absolutely connected. You also see the order of marriage in that woman is formed from man's own body and not the other way around. She's presented by God in Genesis 2.22 to the man. It isn't man that's presented to the woman. Her name is in relationship to the man, which is, by the way, how we get our American tradition. It's not that this is absolutely essential to biblical fidelity, but the tradition in America in the West is that in a Christian marriage, the woman takes the name of the man. So Polly's maiden name was Burdick. And when she married me, she had to go to the Social Security office and change that name. And she did it, and it's a pain. (laughs) It's a pain. But she did it because she understood, and we understood together, that I'm no better than she is, but we want to follow the biblical pattern of marriage, which includes this really beautiful biblical tradition of a woman taking the man's name. Again, it's not essential to Christian fidelity, but you can see how these traditions, they have a biblical basis. Many of them do. The New Testament also recognizes this ordered aspect of marriage in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I am not getting into that part of the verse this morning. I will say this. Quietness doesn't mean absolute silence. It means recognizing the order of marriage. That's really what it means at the heart. But then Paul says this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So the order of of kingdom work in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is based upon the order of creation in Genesis chapter 2. Well, much more could be said, and I've cut out a lot that that really needs to be said, but I'm trying to give you the, the basics. This is the pamphlet. We probably need to write it. How to make marriage Christian again. And in this pamphlet, we need to go back to the text of Scripture, which calls all of us, men and women, to very hard things, to repentance and renewal, monogamy, God-fearing, God-honoring, church-centered marriages, worship-centered lives. Two, three, sexually pure marriages. And this includes a strong challenge for those who aren't yet married or who may never be. And then finally, properly ordered marriages between the husband and the wife.
You know, this is good news when you know the plan, but the bad news here should be obvious in conclusion. Because of sin, you cannot live up to God's pattern or plan for marriage. I certainly don't. You know, when I see man was made first, I'm like, all right, I'm in charge. Some of you are like, God made man first. No, thank you. I'm out of here. But either way, man, we just, we just fail on both sides of this tightrope. And women, same thing. It's like, submit, okay, that means I don't have to do anything. Or submit, no way. And so our relationships together are completely disordered. And that's just mentioning one of the ways to recover Christian marriage. Sin resulted not only in throwing Adam and Eve from the garden, but they wholly lost their ability to do good, to follow God's plan. And as a result, their marriage and every other marriage has been plunged into disarray. Maybe I'm talking to you. Maybe your marriage is in disarray. Maybe your singleness is in disarray. Maybe your pursuit of marriage is in disarray. But there's hope in the gospel to take deformation and make reformation. Amen? The Word of God is powerful. It's living and active. And by reading the Word and following the Word and recommitting to the Lord, no matter where you are in the path of failure, because you're all failing in this in some way, I guarantee it, we can come back to God's plan for marriage. Slowly, there's time. Reformation is difficult, painful, and slow. Reformation requires reflection, slowing down, thinking, and repenting. Reformation requires determination on the part of both husbands and wives, parents and grandparents, children, grandchildren, married, unmarried. Reformation may require professional counseling. I'm completely serious. Reformation may require meeting with the pastor and the elders to confess sin. Men who have sinful marriages, but who have been called in some way to model or to try to model or to try to try to model, right? Godly marriages. Reformation may require patience and a view for the long haul. Maybe your marriage is destroyed. There's hope. A, your salvation doesn't depend on your marriage. B, your children can watch and learn from your examples. C, you can live out life in faith in spite of this fallen world. There's hope. Ask yourself this. If the Lord tarries, will your life, regardless of what you've done up until this point, will it be a blessing to the generations which are to come who will look to you as an example of how to live as a married or unmarried person in an unbelieving world? Will your marriage, if you are married, be the kind of marriage that your children and your friends' children can build upon, can point to? I have a picture on my wall of Graham and Doc. Doc was born in the late 1800s, and Graham was a Choctaw Indian, and they were Christians. And they're smiling, and they're 80. And they're arm in arm, like lovebirds, And I only met Graham 
when I was a baby. But their marriage continues to inspire Polly and me to this day and many in my family. Their marriage is a legacy to the kingdom of God. By the way, she's Pentecostal and he was American Baptist, which is drier than a Presbyterian if you didn't know. And when there was a revival in town, he was a pastor. She skipped church and went to the tent meeting. But they made it work by the power of God and by the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful for Graham and Doc. And the only way that their marriage is possible, that your marriage is possible, is by turning your eyes to Christ the Savior, the bridegroom, the husband of the bride, the head of the church, to trust his leadership, to submit to his headship to follow his lordship, to receive his forgiveness. He shed his blood for the bride. What a husband. That's a high calling for us men, to sacrifice for our wives. By his bloody death, his righteous resurrection from the grave, we can begin to be reformed and to conform to his image so that we might not only begin but actually succeed and living out God's plan for marriage. Let us pray. Father, as we pause with our Bibles before us, this holy word of God that implicates all of us, we ask for your mercy and your grace on the singles and on the marrieds of this church and really all across our denomination, across South Jersey, and across America and around the world. Would you please send reformation and revival to our marriages? Thank you for this series in creation where we can get down to basics. We can look at the, the ground level of what it means to be religious, of what it means to be a Christian. And at the very heart of it is how we live as either married or unmarried persons monogamously in the fear of God, sexually pure, and in an ordered fashion. Help us, Lord. Save our marriages from what they deserve, which is to be utterly destroyed. May you, by your grace, grant us mercy that our marriages would in some way, some small way, reflect glory and the beauty and the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.